So let's pray. Lord, as we come now to open the Word of God, we pray that you would give us the mind of Christ, Holy Spirit, to understand and grapple with the Word of God. Um, change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in Second Peter chapter 1 and going on as we think about how, how people change and Give me this little diagram the last few weeks that in Second Peter 1, there's this emphasis that um, a regenerate person can either go one way or the other. Somebody that knows the Lord can add to their faith the Christian virtues mentioned in this passage, and they'll become fruitful, they'll become productive, they will not stumble. And they will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. On the other hand, there are people, Peter says, who know the Lord, but Jesus is in the central focus of their life. They have forgotten that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That when you forget the rich reality of Christ as central in your life, and Christ becomes just part of the landscape, then, then you no longer celebrate the forgiveness of sin. And Peter says you become nearsighted and blind, and you stumble. And by way of emphasis, you do not hear, well done, good and faithful servant, on the day of judgment. You According to 1 Corinthians 3, some people build on the foundation of Christ using wood, hay, and straw, others with gold, silver, and costly stones. And one group escapes as if through the flames, the other has the commendation from the lips of the Lord. So really two different types of, of people. And the issue is how people change. And in light of what the Lord has done in our lives and in the life of the church in the first century, Peter says this, for this very reason... Verse 5, make every effort, strain, to add to your faith moral excellence, and to moral excellence you add knowledge, and to knowledge you add self-control, and to self-control perseverance. And today we come to brotherly kindness and, or excuse me, uh, godliness and brotherly kindness and love, particularly today, godliness. So you, you add these things, and if you do this, you will be productive and fruitful, and no one here who knows Christ, no one would say today, you know, I really do not want to be productive or fruitful. I just want to be a blah person. I just want to skim by the surface. I, no one's going to say that, but, but, but the decisions we make lead us down that path, and that's why this is vitally important. You, you add to your faith moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and brotherly kindness. And love, and before that, godliness. Now, now, godliness is the awe, worship, and reverence of God, which leads to respectful behavior towards mankind. Let me read a few verses that talk about godliness from the pastoral epistles in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy, it says this regarding godliness. Chapter 3. Paul says, Great indeed, verse 16, we confess is the mystery of godliness, this awe, reverence, adoration, worship of God, the least respectful behavior towards other people. And then he says this. He gives a little hymn. Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And so I, I surmise from this passage that, that the mystery of godliness is rooted in the reality of Jesus. Then he says in chapter 4, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, 
train yourself or discipline yourself for godliness. So you, you discipline yourself for, for godliness, he says, church. And then he says in chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound or life-giving words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, this awe, worship, adoration of God that results in respect for people, verse 6 of chapter 6. Now, now there is a great gain in godliness with contentment. Godliness with contentment. And then he says in Titus 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, this awe, adoration, worship of God. Now, John Murray, who taught at Princeton and then at Westminster, said that, that the fear of God is the soul of godliness. And then he said this, the same chapter in a book called Principles of Conduct. He says, the fear of God is that godliness which consists of the fear that constrains or produces adoration and love. It is the fear which consists in awe and reverence and honor and worship of the living God. And so for our understanding this morning, I'm going to say that godliness and the fear of God are synonyms. So I'm going to be interchanging those words, godliness and and the fear of God. Let me read you some verses that deal with the fear of God or godliness. Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. Proverbs 31, which celebrates a godly woman, says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised, reverences, worships, acknowledges. Isaiah 11, verse 2 and 3, which talks about the coming Messiah, says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And I just step back and say, so if, if the delight of the coming Messiah was in the reverencing and the honoring and the hallowing and the worshiping of the living God, I should cultivate the fear of God in my life. New Testament, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of the fear of the Lord, the reverencing, the awe, the worship of God. Colossians 3, verse 22 and 23 says that we should not work in our jobs as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart as we fear the Lord. Whatever you do, and work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So, so you, we, we work in the presence of God. Or 1 Peter chapter 1, I'll refer to this later, but it says, as you call on a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile here upon the earth. And Acts 9, 31 says this, the church throughout all Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up as they walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. 
So, so the fear of the Lord is the awe and adoration and worship of God that compels love and concern and, and a life of godliness. The fear of the Lord. We talk about this when we sing some of these great hymns of our faith. There's a hymn by a guy named Charles Wesley, one of my favorite hymns, and can it be? And he says this, died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Or John Newton, very famous hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It constrains, compels, leads us to worship and adoration. Or a man named Isaac Watts who, who wrote, When I surveyed the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord. That I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. I get rid of the idols of my life as I see the glory of the cross. The glory of the cross compels me to adoration and worship and love and reverence and honor. So this morning, the fear of the Lord, godliness. Let me give you three tributaries that flow into the concept of the fear of God. There are more than three, but I'm going to give you three. The, the first is this. I live every day in the presence of the living God who watches over me, who shepherds my heart, who guards me. In, in Psalm 139, a well-known psalm, the psalmist celebrates this. He says, verse 5, you hear me in behind and before. You've placed your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can't begin to attain it. So I, I can't get over the fact that, God, you, you, you watch over me. Then he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I go to the height of heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of the earth, you're there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be nothing but night. He says, but to you, O Lord, the darkness is not dark at all. And the night is bright as the day, and the darkness is as light with you. One tributary that leads to reverencing God is to understand I live in the presence of the living God, my shepherd, my king, my savior, my Lord. And he watches over me. I live in the presence of God. The New Testament, Hebrews 4 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Nothing. The second part is, as, as I understand the nature of God and his goodness, I am totally dependent upon the Lord. Jesus says, he's the vine, we're a branch. If we abide in him, we'll produce much fruit. But apart from him, you can't pull it off. I am dependent upon the Lord. A couple of years ago, there was a, landslide of buried of some miners in Chile. 33 men were buried under a, a mountain collapsed that they were mining. It was like a 54-story building collapsing. Many people were able to run out or drive out through the ash and the soot, but 33 men were trapped. And there's a book that's been released entitled Deep Down Dark, The Untold Stories of 33 Men Buried in the Chilean Mine and the Miracle that Set Them Free. And as this book unfolds, the author talks about what these men did when they realized they were buried through 
under a mountain. And it says this, let me just read the, the men's rallying point came through the ageless act of spiritual longing and supplication. So one man stepped forward and kind of served as a chaplain. His name was Jose Enriquez. And he said, Lord, we aren't the best of men. Please have pity upon us. And then the men started praying and confessing their sin. He said there were evangelicals and Catholics and atheists. But they all became people of prayer. So one man came forward and confessed that he drinks too much. Another man came forward and confessed that he had lived a lifetime of anger. Another man named Pedro Cortez came forward and confessed he'd been a very poor daughter and had been a very poor father to his daughter and begged the Lord to give him a chance to love his daughter again. And it went on and on. He says, and so in, in a state of helplessness, the miners began a daily ritual of collective prayer and confession. Quote, standing or kneeling, listening to the word of God and what became a short-lived collective of spiritual solace. People were speaking the word of God as they remembered it. And then one man was interviewed by the New Yorker, Sasha Weiss, and this is what she wrote. Once the men realized they could be saved, the conversation about rations of food turned to talk of fame, along with speculation about future earnings and movie rights. When some of the men's iPods, this is amazing to me, some of the men's iPods were sent down the shaft before they got out. Listen, a community of suffering broke into particles of isolation. That's a powerful sentence. A community of suffering broke into particles of isolation. That's me. That's you. There are times when you come before the Lord and you say, God, I can't pull this off. And you're like a trapped miner. But more often than not, we say, when the sun starts shining and the birds start singing, I've got this, God. And what I need to realize as I walk in the fear of the Lord is everything I do is dependent upon the mercy of the living God. The breath I take, the food I eat, drive from point A to point B, everything. And, and so if I'm going to walk in the fear of the Lord, I've got to realize I walk in the presence of God and I'm totally dependent upon him. The third tributary I want to suggest is, is a sense of understand that I will give an account for what I say and speak what, the way I live my life. So presence, empowered, accountability. I, I, I am accountability. I'm accountable to, to the God that is there. Years ago, I don't hear this anymore. Years ago, you read history, very, very frequently said, Somebody would be speaking of an individual who maybe is in a public spotlight, and they would say, he is a God-fearing man. I don't hear that anymore. She's a God-fearing woman. A God-fearing man means that that individual realizes that he answers to the God who is there. And so he can be trusted if he's a God-fearing man. His word is his bond. If he's a God-fearing man, you don't have to have 15 notaries and a selfie to believe him. God-fearing man. Because he'd realize he's accountable. There's a story. I'm reading through the book of Genesis now. as part of my read through the Bible in the year. Start with Genesis and Matthew. And so, so I've been reading through Genesis. And Genesis is just filled with stories that are incredible about seedy people. Really 
really like National Enquirer stories. Can't believe it. So in Genesis 20, there's this guy named Abraham who's the father of the faithful. Abraham. And Abraham marries this gorgeous, drop-dead, beautiful woman named Sarah. That's why the text says, basically. So Abraham goes to this kingdom of a guy named Abimelech. And Abraham, being a brave and a guarding and a protective husband, says, Sweetheart, you're beautiful. And do me a favor. If people say, Who is she? Tell them you're my sister. Because if they find out you're my wife, they'll probably kill me and take you into their palace. So she said, okay. And so they go to this kingdom of a guy named Abimelech. And it says here, Abimelech the king took Sarah. Verse 3, but God gave to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, Abimelech, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, and she's another man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, which is a nice way of saying they hadn't had sex. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And the Lord said, yes, I know that. So I'm going to spare you. But don't touch her. Now, return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall die, you and all that you have. Next verse. So Abimelech rose early the next morning. I bet he did. (laughs) And called all of his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done And Abimelech said to Abraham, why did you see and do this thing to me? And Abraham said, listen, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. And then he says, really, she is my sister. She's my 15th cousin, three times removed. And no, no, Abraham, you just lied protect herself. But the, 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 no fear of God in this place. And I would just say, you know, when, when we think about an accountability and the fear of God and reverencing God, if you look at the, the, the landscape of the 20th century, read a book called Modern Times by Paul Johnson, the British historian, and you go through the modern times, the 20th century, modern times, and you look at the genocide of the Turks against the Armenians, 1.5 million at least killed Or you look about the the genocide of the Nazis against the Jews and other people. Or you look at the genocide of Stalin against his people. Or Pol Pot against the people of Cambodia. They killed 20% of the people of Cambodia. Or Mao Zedong against his people. Mao Zedong who said, power is in the barrel of a gun. And you say, what common thread held all of these genocides together? Here's the answer. There is no fear of God 
There is no acknowledgement of God. There's no acknowledgement there's a great creator God to whom I will give an account. And so I read this and I think about, I walk in his presence. I'm dependent upon him for my daily bread and everything I do. And then I'll give an account and I say, God, make me a God-fearing man. So the fear of God, four or five points. Number one, unless you always remember the glory of the gospel of grace, it's easy to fall into a servant fear of a master who may wake up with a headache and mistreat you. But the fear of the Bible for God's people is the fear of a son or a daughter who wants to please a father who loves them selflessly. We call that a fear of a daughter or son as compared to servile fear. So unless you constantly understand the gospel of grace, it's easy to fall back into that error. That's why first, understand 1 John is very important. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, this is what it says. It says that by this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. You get the cross, so you'll have confidence on the day of judgment. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, craven fear. For fear has to do with punishment. We don't fear punishment. Christ bore the wrath of God on the cross for my sin so that I would never have to experience judgment. There's no punishment. Romans 5, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to be a God-fearing man in that I glory and worship, and I am glad in the presence and power of Jesus by the work of the Holy Spirit. Desertion is a horrid thing. If you're very old, you've had friends who you loved and respected who for some reason or other deserted you in your own understanding. And it hurts. It hurts. I, I've walked with some of you who've seen your spouse walk out on you. And it is devastating. It is horrific. It is life-destroying. Some people here are better parents than I could be in a hundred lifetimes, and yet their kids have walked out of their lives and don't even communicate unless they have to, which is, I don't understand. Other people here have had parents that deserted them at a young age or even latter years, and it's, it's, a, it's a wound that never, ever truly heals. When it comes to desertion, let me tell you, there is one who will never, ever, 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 ever desert you, and that's the living God whose name is Jesus. Ever in his triune glory. He will never, ever, ever desert you. So I don't want you to walk away this morning and say, Well, I need to fear God because no, we, we, we reverence and we honor and we glory and we rejoice in the goodness of God. And we live our lives out of the privilege of being the child of God. Now I do. I do know that my heavenly father disciplines those whom he loves, always with love. Always with love, but he disciplines us. I, I don't want to have to experience the discipline of God because of my disobedience. So I understand that. But he, will, he disciplines me, but he never, ever, 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 ever deserves me if I'm his child by faith.
And you know, that is really, really good news. So, point number two is that I need to fear God for my good, for my joy, for my usefulness. A couple of verses in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, well-known passage. Trust the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I want that. Healing to flesh, refreshment to bones. Or Proverbs 2 says this. If you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, if you make your attendant to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, if you search for us for silver and look for us for hidden treasures, then, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. And find the knowledge of God. For he gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. See, see, he gives this. If you search for it and look for it, then you'll discover the fear of the Lord that is clean and nurturing the soul of godliness. And it keeps us in a place of adoration and worship and joy. I love the fact that God has given us his word. I was thinking about this recently. I thought about this my illustration. I hope it works. You're taking a course in physics to get a master's degree in some area, and you're not very good in math. And so you've had a long semester. Maybe you're a college student. Maybe you're older than a college student. But uh, you just, you, you've read the syllabus. You realize that there's only one grade, and that's the final exam. And you think, well, I'm going to just skip the class. They don't take role. I'll try to catch up on some podcast, and I'll try to and you don't do that. And so uh, two days before the exam, you start studying the night before you cram, which is a terrible way to try to take an exam, as you know. And you get to the examination room, and the professor walks in and says, I've got good news. This is going to be a group exam. And there are some people who have just happened to be in town, and they're going to work with some of our students in this group exam. And your group of three will come up with one answer, and that will be your grade. And they say, Mr. Brown, here are the people helping you out in your group exam. <laughs> and the guy on the left is Albert Einstein. Professor Einstein, the guy on the right is Professor Banks, who taught at uh, MIT and UC Santa Cruz and Princeton and Rutgers and developed with two other men the string theory of physics and received all types of prizes and adulations and a good team to work with. And so they say, begin the exam, and they start doing the exam, and you're sitting there, and you don't even know what the words mean. And you go, oh, man. And you look over to Albert Einstein. He's working feverishly. And you look at Professor Banks, and he's doing it. And, you know, good grief. And about 30 minutes later, Albert Einstein puts his pencil down. You go, wow. Oh, no, no. And then Professor Banks, about 50 minutes later, puts his pencil down. They said, we're finished. How'd you do, Mr. Brown? I said, well, how'd you do? And... Uh, this Albert Einstein said, here's the answer to the two problems I have. And Banks says, here's what I have. And they're mirror answers. And I said, well, that's not what I got, guys. I, uh, I took math at the Citadel for one, two semesters. And I, I think I'm going to go with my, I'm going to send in my answer. I, I'm not going to go with Einstein and Banks. I'm, I'm going to send in my answer. You know what you call that? Stupid. Stupid. 
do you know what you call somebody seriously? God's word says go this way, and you say, I know that, but I'm going to go this way. You know what we call that? A fool. It's a fool. So, so the fear of God is clean. The Bible says the fear of God is clean, enduring forever. So this is for my good. John Calvin said this. So when it comes to taking or embracing the law, to take special delight in the law and from God, from whose kindness the believer expects both an abundance of all good things and the glory of immortal life, by whose marvelous power and mercy he knows himself free from the jaws of death. I like We should take special delight. Special delight. Fourthly, the, the fear of the Lord produces godly behavior. Godly behavior. Listen to 1 Peter 1. It says that, verse 14, it says that, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You used to live that way, but don't live that way anymore, he says. But, but, but he who has called you is holy, so you should be holy yourselves, not of your conduct, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, with reverence and awe and devotion, knowing you were not ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers by perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. So you, you live with adoration and joy and worship and gladness knowing you're purchased by the blood of Christ. And, and see, that, 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 that causes me to realize I will give an account and it causes me to think about the way I speak, the way I think, the, the way I respond to people. The, the, the psalmist even said this, Lord, may, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. So I, I want to pray, God, may even the meditations of my heart that nobody can see but you be pleasing to you. That's what you call godliness. Fifthly or fourthly, and I hope you, I hope you see this. The fear of the Lord builds rich and beautiful community and rich and beautiful marriages and rich and beautiful friendships and rich and beautiful churches. So the progression is add to your faith moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness. So, So to me, godliness, the fear of the Lord, leads into brotherly kindness. Let me show you a verse. I hope I get you to see this. I think... I think it's important. 1 Peter 2.17 says, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. So you honor all people, but you love fellow believers. And this says, Fear God. Honor the emperor. One thing the Greco-Roman world hated about Christians was that the Christians had the gall to say, all men are equal. All men are made in the image of God. It drove them crazy because they had this aristocratic caste system where you did all this stuff and you did this. And, and you, but to think that the higher echelons would really care for slaves, human chattel, but come on, give me a break. 
but the church eradicated that. And so Peter says, very interesting, honor all men, love the brethren, fear God, honor the emperor. So the same word is used for honoring the emperor as used to honor everybody. So you honor the emperor because God's put him there, but you honor everyone. But, but the crux of the matter is you fear God. Because of grace, you care for people. Because of grace, you love the brothers and the sisters in the Lord. Now, I was... So you don't live in a shame-based culture. Um, reading parts of a book entitled Excellent Daughters is about how women are treated in certain places in the Islamic world. It's an amazing statement. Give example of a 17-year-old girl in Syria recently who was raped, and they put her in jail because the jailer knew her family and knew her family might be committed to what they call honor killings, and he wanted to save her from being put to death. In uh, certain parts of the Islamic world, if you're involved in any type of sexual activity outside of marriage, you're considered to be impure and sometimes they kill you to wipe out the stain of impurity. And so he put her in jail. She's 17. She was there several days. She said, I want to go home. I miss my mom and my dad. I want to go home. She says, you're going home. You're I'm going to go home. She goes home. That very night, her brother killed her, and they threw a party. Because they said, we're wiping out the stain of, of sexual misconduct. Our girl was raped. Now, now we don't do that. But there are many people who just live in shame. And your shame is covered by the work of Jesus. And, and so you build community as you understand the forgiveness of sins. Or we live on the basis of scorekeeping or performance. I read a book entitled My Marriage by a man who's been dead for a number of years entitled Jacob Wasserman. And um, he talked about his marriage, and he's very honest in the book. I was married for 25 years, he said, and I was miserable from day one. Try to, get, try to get my wife to divorce me. She would not. And then he writes this. This is an incredible statement in his book. He said, he says, the difference between my wife and I was this. She forgot everything from one hour to the next, the way angels or demons forget. I forgot none of it for all eternity. And it grew darker and darker in my heart. What a statement. So, I, so the problem in our marriage, he says, in part was I lived on the basis of performance. And I didn't forget. And the non-forgetting and the bringing it up put a stain in my heart that grew darker and darker and darker. You see, I, I believe that fearing God leads to rich community, rich marriage, rich friendship. Recently, we've been hearing about a movement called Black Lives Matter, and this is one of their core beliefs. We are guided by the fact that all black lives matter, regardless of actual or perceived sexual identity, gender identity, gender expression, economic status, ability, disability, religious beliefs or disbeliefs, immigration status, 
or location. That's in their guiding principles under collective values. Now, there's a lot about that statement that I could embrace, but there's a lot of it's about sexual freedom, and I can't go there. But, but if I had anybody here from any group that says this ethnic group or this socioeconomic group or this geographical group, their lives matter, I would ask them very gently, why do lives matter? Why do any lives matter? And their answer would be something like this, because they do. Okay. But why do they matter? Say, well, in our meta-narrative, in our certain thinking, in our post-postmodern world, we believe that, okay, but, but why do they matter? See, last week we talked about the Sanctity of Human Life on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, but because the Sanctity of Human Life is a biblical issue. See, if you say any lives matter because I say they do, that's a very dangerous philosophical ground to stand on. But we believe all lives matter, church, because all men and women and boys and girls are made in the image of God. And they deserve respect and Christian love. And so when we send people to death row, who go from this church and minister to men and women on death row, they do it because they're made in the image of God, and they're worthy of respect and Christian love. When you pass people in the hallway, they're made in the image of God, and they deserve respect and Christian love. That's why lives matter. And it gives us an incredible place to speak with grace and dignity and authenticity to our world. One year and two weeks ago, a horrendous thing happened in, uh, in Paris when some Islamic extremists broke into the Charlie Hebdo office in Paris and they killed 12 people in this magazine office that had just published a magazine that was satirically making fun of Islam. And then five people across town in a grocery store were killed. So 17 were killed and just two or three days later in France there was a mass spontaneous demonstration where 3.7 million people marched in the streets of the major cities of France, and many of them held up banners and wore T-shirts that said this, this translated, I'm told, I am Charlie or we are Charlie, talking about the magazine, talking about standing for the, the, the freedom of speech and, and human dignity. It was a, a, a wonderful statement. And, but this particular magazine church was, was just very satirical. They didn't believe there was any real truth. And they, they made fun of all religions and all peoples. And their, their whole deal was just were satirical and were kind of caustic. And they were very gifted at it. And in the aftermath of that, I read an editorial and I thought, man, this guy nails it. And this is what the editorial said in part. No, that's not... That was a formal one. This is, this is out of First Things, a magazine called First Things. It says, sustaining the freedoms for which the West is justly proud requires convictions about human dignity that are affirmed without irony. And the writer says, I am not Charlie. In other words, I, I don't make fun of, this guy's a Christian, the Christian faith. Because I believe and God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So, so he says, I, I, I am not Charlie. And I thought this was brilliant. And Charlie can be Charlie only if most of us are not. 
Get that? Charlie can only be Charlie if most of us are not because we believe in the dignity of man because he's made in the image of God. And that's where we stand. And the history of the world is littered with tyrants who had no fear of God. And so I, I, I just say, I want to be a God-fearing man. I want to be a God-fearing man. I want to realize that I, I walk in the presence of God and everything I have is a gift from God and I'm going to give an account to God. And you know, when you walk in the fear of God, Jesus says it gives you a laser focus in life. In Matthew 10, he says one of these verses that you go, wow, that's something. He says in Matthew 10, 28, he says, don't, don't, don't fear people who can kill your body. But you fear the one who after you're dead has the keys of death and hell. The living God. You reverence Him. You stand in awe of Him. You worship Him. And it gives you a laser focus. So God, give us the grace to be this type of people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, the ability to open the Bible and read it and know we're hearing from you. And I do pray that we be God-fearing men and women as we reverence you and stand in awe of you and worship you and glory in you, that we, we, don't, we don't fear you as a um, slave fears a tyrannical master. God forbid. We, we, we reverence you as a son or a daughter who rejoices in a benevolent father who loves us selflessly by the cross. And so, God, we walk in your presence every day. Every day you give us this day our daily bread. And, Lord, every day we either speak with grace and dignity and live with grace and dignity and selflessness, or we do not. And so help us live as accountable stewards out of the overflow of thanksgiving because of the salvation that is ours through Jesus but let us be God-fearing men and women, I pray, who glory in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much.